you know, I, I've got some Arabic on my arm that I, I got tattooed in Jordan. And this guy asked me, he's like, oh, is that is that Chinese? And I was in Puerto Rico and, and my girlfriend got a yellow drink and it was called Uncino Chinese. <laughs> it's just... Nathan's Chinese, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm allowed to laugh in general. You're listening to the Art and War podcast with your host, Mitch and Nathan. Mitch is a former Airborne Infantry squad leader who now spends most of his time coaching soccer. Nathan is a professional illustrator and an avid shooter with a couple of years of Canadian military experience. Together, they run the Seaburn Art page. Enjoy the show. Today, we have Colin Mayfield, freelance journalist, amateur Spanish speaker, and handsome fellow with long hair that I inspire to have. So, Colin, have you ever been arrested? Uh, I've been detained. I've been detained a few times. Uh, first detainment was after Richard Brooks was killed at a Wendy's in Atlanta. Uh, we were filming the looting that happened in Lenox Mall, and uh, we were just trying to get out of there, and we didn't want to deal with police. And this was back when I this was two years ago, and I didn't even have a press pass back then, and got arrested. Well, we got detained. They had us handcuffed. They had two of my friends in the cop car, and then this other guy and I were outside, and we're just trying to make small talk with the cop, so it goes our way. I'm talking to him the entire time, because the other guys were just my friends, and I was the one who's the actual journalist, and they just made sure we weren't felons, let us go. They bought my story. They looked at some of the stuff I'd put online, and uh, so that was the first time. Got detained again at a Breonna Taylor protest. That was fun. They, uh, they put a tear gas launcher in our faces. Um, but they let us go because uh, by this point I did have press documents and they couldn't hold me. So you uh, kind, you've kind of been all over the world. How, how is that? How, how, for starters, how have you gotten there? Like you said two years ago, you didn't have your press pass, but you're still covering all of these things. I imagine when you go to foreign countries, like the rights of press are different or treated a little bit differently. I mean, cause even in yeah. America, I remember like two years ago, it was like, no, I'm with the press. And there was people like filming stuff. And it was like, we don't give a fuck. Like you're getting arrested anywhere or detained. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's like, they can arrest you. They can detain you. It's just a matter of will the charges stick, which is the silver lining at least. Uh, I mean, when I when I started this, it was back during BLM, and I was just getting into it. I, I just started getting interested in journalism, and I realized it was something I definitely wanted to do. But as far as doing it abroad, I mean, it, it varies by from country to country. So, uh, like, with Ukraine, I had to apply for accreditation. I had to apply. I, I don't know why, but the Ukrainian ministry, as far as accrediting journalists it is incredibly disorganized um one friend of mine got his press card back after a few weeks of waiting and it had his name but some random check guy's photo and id number and then another friend of mine got his press accreditation back like with his photo but it had another journalist's name i i had to apply seven times before i finally got my accreditation i didn't i didn't get that Ukrainian press accreditation until like early May and I'd been there since February. So how do you how do you get to Ukraine like in a time of war? Because you were there kind of right in the beginning and, and I saw some yeah. images you took. We talked about it earlier. 
they're very intense and powerful how how do you how do you go about getting there you know like financially do people support you do you just go on your own is there somebody contracting you out to do this so uh a lot of it is self-funded i do have a uh, i do have a second job i work in a hospital for the time being but i also supplement that with writing and selling pictures to my photo agencies but with ukraine it, it was interesting. The reason the reason I chose to go to Ukraine was because it was one that was practical for me to go to. I was able to find a flight that was cheap enough for me to afford because nobody wanted to go there. And it's uh, it's actually kind of funny. I originally purchased a flight with Delta, but I was watching the news and I just I was just getting worse and worse, and I got a bad feeling that I was not going to make that flight. And I tried arguing with the people at Delta, and they wouldn't let me bump my flight up. Like. So I, uh, I decided to gamble, and I bought a second plane ticket with Turkish Airlines. And I, I flew in to Kiev on the 21st, like three days before the invasion happened. And uh, once the Russians bombed, my, uh, bombed the airport in Kiev, then Delta Airlines is like, okay, we'll refund you now. Jeez. But uh, so, so that's how I, I got out right before it started. So you were th- three days before the invasion? Three days before. So I, I, I was in Ukraine back in 2014 or 2013. Back when those, you know, that kind of conflict was going on in the beginning, there was some skirmishes and there was the anti-Ukrainian government. Um, yeah. Ukrainians. Yeah. When they, uh, when they ousted Yanukovych. Yeah. And it was tense back then. But there wasn't, I mean, there was a threat, don't get me wrong, but nobody was like, Russia's about to invade us. They're just going to supply weapons to the, um, you know, to the rebels, and and there's going to be some mortars maybe lobbed out over the border and, and things like that. And it was tense then. You were there three days before the invasion, which almost felt inevitable from my point of view, just watching stuff on the news. What was kind of the feel of the people there in Ukraine, uh, days leading up to that, did they know it was coming? It, it was really mixed. So, like at my hostel in Kiev, uh, you know, they're like, "Why'd you bring all this body armor?" I'm like, "Oh, yeah, because you know, there there might be an invasion. Like, I'm and just in case there is, you know, that's why I'm here. I want to, you know, focus on the troop buildups and etc." And, and these these Ukrainians at my hostel were like, oh, this, this war has been happening for eight years. Nothing's going to happen. They were very optimistic. And little did they know that it, not just Donbass, but Kiev was going to be bombed and attacked as, as badly as it was. So, I mean, some people were very optimistic, but at the same time, there were soldiers everywhere. There were police everywhere. And you could tell that people were at least preparing. That's, it, I mean, what incredible timing for you to arrive. So when you go about reporting and getting these pictures and and going about doing what you do over there, do you have to contact like the Ukrainian government or Ukrainian military and be like, hey, can I come take some pictures of you guys, you know, massing troops or you guys setting things up? I'm, I'm a journalist. Or do you just stroll in and just start taking pictures? So like I said, I applied for that government press accreditation before I left. And I mean, I was out there and hadn't gotten it. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going anyway. I'm going to cover as much as I can. Worst, worst thing they can do is deport me. 
and I had my American press documents with me, both from my photo agency and like the press passes I have from different photographers associations that I'm a part of. And, uh, and that helped a lot. Like there were a lot of instances where they, people would look at my American press documents and be like, okay, this is acceptable. This guy is clearly a Westerner. Uh, but then there were other times that, that they were very strict about it. And because I didn't have the Ukraine specific one, I was, I was made to wait in the car while colleagues could photograph things, but I wasn't able to. And that was infuriating because it's like, I, I keep applying for this press pass and y'all aren't giving it to me. And yeah, there were, there were a couple heated arguments with, uh, with press attaches who, who like wouldn't accept my American documents. It, it was very frustrating, but I mean, the unsung heroes of journalism are fixers and they're just basically, it's like a, like a tour guide for a journalist. It's a local who speaks the language, can act as a translator and is able to get access towards, you know, into military installations and et cetera. And uh, so that's, that's what helped a lot. You, you hire a local person to, to take you as far as they're willing to go, really. So you're going through and, and you're there. What happens the day of the invasion? So were you still in Kiev? Okay, so the night before the invasion, uh, my friend and colleague Finn de Pontier and I decided we were going to head east, you know, to see the troops amassing. And our first stop east was Kharkiv. I wanted to go all the way to Donbass, but Finn was more apprehensive and didn't want to go that far. He didn't want to go all the way up to it. So we just were like, okay, fine. Kharkiv is on the way. We have to go there anyway. So he actually, his taxi driver fucked up and he missed his train east. I made the train. He did not. So I got into Kharkiv at about 11 o'clock at night, the 23rd. The invasion's the next day. Finn didn't get there until the next morning. So I managed to check into a hostel super late. And, uh, you know, it's... I wake up at five o'clock the next morning to news of the invasion. I immediately try and get out and figure out what's happening uh, to no avail. Really. I mean, I, I go as I'm walked as far North as I could, but then I was like, hey, I'm going to get tired. And I turned around, went back to the hostel and the hostel owner was deciding they were going to shut down. So they were kicking us all out and cause the hostel owner was going to flee. So we all got kicked out of the hostel. And fortunately the hostel was like right by the train station. So, soon as Finn gets there, uh, he hears from another colleague about this one hotel that's open called the Kharkiv Palace, and it's where all the journalists are. And the first day was just really chaotic because nobody knew what was happening. There's rumors going around about where Russians are. You can, you can hear artillery in the distance. Small arms fire is getting closer and closer. And it's just, it was just chaos the first day. But uh, we get to the Kharkiv Palace, and it was just, it was a surreal, disturbing scene. Like you still have well-dressed hotel concierge and they're playing classical music live on the piano. It's just, I mean, I, I don't want to make this cliched comparison, but it is like that, that scene in Titanic where the band is still playing. It's just the first couple of days of the invasion were just so surreal because nobody, people didn't expect it, but at the same time they did. It's just the first few days like really threw us off. And I, I know kind of how, as things progressed, it seemed 
to really pick up steam and get worse after like a week. Like the first week, it was kind of like you said, it was, it's kind of surreal. There's some stuff in the distance, some skirmishes. And, you know, of course, there's, you know, uh, Russians pushing through. But then it, it seems like that second week, they started to push into cities. They started to push into towns. That's when you started to see the low-flying Russian jets um, shooting stuff into villages. That's yeah. when you started to, those videos of actual troops engaging one another in, in streets and and all that started to pop up. And I, I saw some images that you took after some Russians went through. And I, I think they had left, correct? I did visit a couple of abandoned uh, Russian positions, like places they had claimed and, and left. But uh, a lot of those were later. And then on day three of the invasion, we got up to uh, towards the rear of the front line and we saw a bunch of burnt out Russian armor and a few and some, you know, there was a Russian corpse and various bits of debris left. So you, I don't want to focus too much on Ukraine, but... You, you I mean, I, I understand. It's 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 the biggest thing I've done. So, right. I mean, but but you not only in Ukraine, you you've posted intense imagery of you all around the world doing. I mean, I mean you're not doing anything. You're you're simply you know there. Yeah, I'm just there. You're, yeah, you're there filming and or taking pictures. How how does seeing all of these you know. You, you you mentioned a burnt corpse. Um, I saw some of your images. Uh, like I said, I went back like a year ago and went through all of your stuff, but I've been following you since, and you come across a lot of really horrific things. Does that does that kind of take a mental effect on you, or are you able to process these these tragedies that you see in a different way? How how is that for you? I mean, yes and no. A, a lot of it does does bother me a little bit but it's not it's not debilitating and i also haven't had any serious close calls like some of my colleagues have like uh i've never been shelled i've i've seen shelling from a distance some of my colleagues have been shelled that sounds absolutely terrifying i've i've been within like a mile of shelling but being up close to it completely different but i mean there are some things you can never forget, like uh, like I was I was with some colleagues and we were outside this village near Vilkivka, and a friend of mine was with some other journalists the day before, and they had come across a Russian mass grave. It was a bunch of Russian corpses all piled. In. It was like seven or eight, I think, and they were all piled in. It was you know horribly gruesome. They were all rotted and horrific looking. And we went the next day, and the uh, Ukrainian authorities had pulled the bodies out right before we got there, but the stench was still there. And that is something that, that I'm never going to be able to forget. There were, cause I, I saw bodies at the beginning of the war that were frozen in the snow, but then in May it's, it's rotted piles of, of flesh. And that was far more disturbing. Yeah. Smells. Oh yeah. I, uh, I, I tripped and got a little bit of Russian on my hand, and it was, oh, it, it was disgusting. It was, it was fucking terrible. Yeah, those things can be very, I mean, they're intense, but you, that, that's why I asked, because you, 
you take images that are very, very powerful. We discussed it before. I, I can't describe them as cool because dead bodies aren't cool, but you being there. To- I'll say the riots are cool. <laughs> riots, riots are fun. War is depressing. When it, when it comes to war, you know, so we'll, we'll use Ukraine for an example, just because that's a recent one that you were there at. Do you know what would happen if, let's say, you were on the front lines and you're on the you're not like on a side uniform, but let's say you were just taking images and you were documenting what was happening on the Ukrainian side? What happens if that Ukrainian unit that you're with gets overwhelmed and like there's now Russians there? Do you get you get captured or are you just like I'm pressed? I I would be I'd be terrified and waving my press badge and camera everywhere and hoping that I'm just detained and not war crimed. That was actually something we were very scared about in the first week because fog of war is a very real thing and and within those first few days, hold up in the Kharkiv Palace, we uh the hotel we were in, I mean, we thought that I mean, we were hearing rumors that the, the city was entirely circled. It was only semi-encircled. We didn't know for the first couple of days. And I had a, I had a very lengthy phone call with my mother talking about how there's a good chance I'm going to get detained and go to Rostov, uh, you know, just across the border in Russia for God knows how long. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And it turned out that we weren't encircled, but... Yeah, hopefully just detained and not war crimed. Well, I asked because they're in in the Middle East. I know with like the Taliban and ISIS, there's a lot of photographers and journalists that went there and they were like promised like, yeah, you guys can come. We, you know, we verified you like Taliban people or, or ISIS. Yeah. Have, we verified you. You can come and 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 we want, you know, to, to talk with you. And, and then they end up getting there and they get like kidnapped. And they get imprisoned for a couple months and then they get threatened. And then it's, you know, eventually most of them end up getting released, but there's some where they get killed. Yeah. Um, So I was just, you know, because we describe the people in the Middle East, like Taliban and ISIS-K, we dehumanize them a lot and we're like, oh, they're savages, you know, whatever. They're, they're not, it's like a shithole third world country. Um, You know, you, you can't really expect um, hospitality, even if you're like a journalist, but I was curious how that is now that there's kind of like a modern army doing the invading against another modern army. It like, is it, could, could you, do you think if you wanted to go to Russia and do what you did on the Ukrainian side, on the Russian side? I do not think it would be nearly as free. I think I think it would be a lot more manicured what I would see. I I have very little faith in uh, freedom of the press on the other, on the other side of the front. Uh, not to say that it's it's not very important. I follow a few photographers that are on the Russian side, and I love seeing the images of the separatists. It's it's nice to be able to see that, but I, I do think that you know there's a lot of evidence you're not going to see. Like you're never going to see, you're not going to see Bucha or you know, the recent mass burial site of Izium that, you know, popped up in the last week or so, you're not going to see that if you're on the Russian side. I mean, they're not incentivized to show you mass graves with corpses tied with their yeah, hands behind their backs. Uh, of course. They're not going to let you paint Russia in a bad light. I'll, um, I'll say this much. Um, 
I visited one of the Russian-backed separatist countries, not the Donetsk People's Republic or Luhansk People's Republic. Those would have been very difficult for me to get to. I did want to go to them, but then the war happened, and it's like, okay, that's not going to happen. I did go to Transnistria, though, which internationally considered Moldova, but it's another Russian-backed breakaway state. I was, I was, you know, stopped and held up by police in Ukraine, maybe 10 or so times. The longest time was only about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. With, when I got, when I got detained in Transnistria, uh, they held me for like seven hours, strip searched me and deported me. So that was, that was my, my brief three days of trying to report on the other side. Yeah, and, and and when I say the other side, I don't mean you like going and working for the other side or you're working for one side or the other. I just mean... No, just kinda, physically being there. Yeah, yeah. just physically being... Because you were physically on, you know, the, the Ukrainian side. Were you... Did you ever kind of embed yourself with the Ukrainian troops? Uh, there were a few times, yeah. Most, uh, mostly territorial defense, but I also met... I met some Ukrainian Marines down in Mykolaiv. Uh, defense, Ukrainian defense forces, um, or territorial defense forces in Kharkiv and Dnipro, uh, Ukrainian army in Kharkiv, and the infamous Azov. I was with some Azov in both Dnipro and, and Kharkiv, uh, which, um, you know, Azov, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to get in their politics, but, uh, I actually went to a sauna with Azov Battalion in Geneva. That was that was fucking wild. But this we were all just getting drunk and hanging out at a sauna. It was surreal. And they all they all brought their AKs. It was fun. <laughs> so, so when you're with, were they like welcome, like happy that you were there? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh they, I mean, yeah they loved it. they loved having us Western journalists. They were always great. Because a lot of the territorial defense people we were with, whether they were like good friend Sergey, Shrek, uh, I, I went out with those guys multiple times, and they they were happy to take us out. Uh, same thing with the Azov guys. There's this underground Azov base somewhere near the city center of Kharkiv, and I got to go in there a number of times, and they always fed us so well. I mean, their their food was great. Everyone was super hospitable. We were able to get interviews with commanders, no issue. Uh, when I went to the sauna with the Azov guys, they were just giving us food, beer. It was a very fun night. All the Ukrainian servicemen I was ever, men and women, I was ever embedded with, they were all very happy to have us there and never treated us like, like we were a burden. The only time I did have issues with soldiers was this one instance that I was with foreign volunteers. So when you, so with the Azov guys specifically, I remember there was that documentary, I think it was on Netflix before the war. And then, and then that kind of got taken down and. Wait, which one are you talking about? Winter on Fire? I think so. Yeah. And that got taken down? Because I, I, I remember it, watching it, it back in like cut. March or something like that. It got taken down for a bit, uh, slightly edited, then put back up. Okay, because I, I watched it while I was over there. Wait, they edited it? Yeah, I, th I think there's it was it was cut a little bit. Winter on fire edits because I, I, mean, I saw it post edit. 
but I'll say this much: like 2014 as of and 2022 as of are two very different as ofs. Yeah, but in which I'm, way? I'm back in 2014. You were seeing that handful of photos of dude Sieg Heiling with swastika banners, and now. I mean, I've, I've heard this from Asian dudes. There were a couple of different Filipino volunteers that I was with in, in separate instances who were both with Azov. And they were like, they're not racist. They're just hardcore nationalists. So I think both, it, because Azov has been integrated integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces and and Nazi symbolism is illegal in Ukraine. So I think both integration into the Ukrainian government has pulled them away from their, you know, the fascisticness. And then also, uh, you know, I think that seeing, you know, black and brown foreign volunteers come into Ukraine has also, also helped out. How's it going, lads and ladies? I'm BR, producer of the show, here to take a quick break to tell you about our Patreon. Not only do we want to continue improving the quality of what we can do here on Iron War, but we want to push what we do all over at Seaburn Art, from the guides to pursuing video content and the lofty goal of having a space for our team to make it all happen, and the Patreon helps us get after it. But what's in it for you? Our Patreon subscribers enjoy five different tiers of exclusive perks, ranging from all of the content the lads would post on a pre-Zuckerberg Instagram, downloadable high-resolution guides and targets, including Redcoats, Skinwalkers, John Harvey Kellogg, World Economic Forum, Cult Leaders, and more. Also, behind-the-scenes info like Nathan's personal art, spicy memes, and at our highest tier, get monthly art commissions created by Nathan himself. You can find our Patreon via the link in this episode's description at patreon.com slash seaburnart, or in the Seaburn Art page's bio on Instagram. Now let's get back to the show. So there's there's obviously a narrative about the Azov Battalion, and it it's really weird because you have one side. I I don't want to get too deep into politics, but for the context of the question I'm about to ask, on one side you have people like, oh, now we're just going to ignore the Azov Battalion and all these horrible things that they've done, and then on the other side you're like, they're completely ignoring the Azov Battalion. You were actually there, and you said that you've worked with them, and. You, we, we talked earlier, you try to remain as unbiased as, as you can, and you try to not pick a side in the narrative. You were there with the Azov guys. You mentioned they were very hosp- hospitable. They were very friendly. You were able to get access to the commanders yeah. and interview people. Is it as... Is their image as it's portrayed by one side or the other, which one is accurate or are any of them accurate? What, what is it actually like for them? From my perspective, from my perspective being there, it was somewhat in the middle because I saw Azov guys interacting with, with non-white foreign volunteers with no issue. And it's like they're in solidarity for the sake of protecting Ukraine's right to exist. But at the same time, a lot of them, you know, it's not 2014. There are no swastikas, but there were a hell of a lot of uh, there were some sketchy patches. Um, <laughs> yeah, I remember black the, black suns were coming. Black suns. I, uh, you know, uh, and this was a, this was a point of contention with my uh, with my non-white girlfriend that I mentioned earlier, because uh, it's like I, I took this photo. There was this one Azov dude who had a black sun on his plate carrier. And I got a photo of it, and he wouldn't let me get his face in it because it's a black sun. But he let me get just the plate carrier. 
Uh, what is Black and Sun, just for people that so, don't know? So the Black Sun is a symbol, and its origin is very uh, – it's debated. So in all of my research, I have not been able to find anything about, about the Black Sun, and, and I haven't looked that, that deep into it. But I haven't found anything that goes back past Wevelsberg Castle, which was the headquarters of the SS. Heinrich Himmler made it the headquarters of the SS, and there's this one room in Wevelsberg where they had a big black sun on the floor. So it is a symbol that was used and and propagated and made famous by by the Schutzstaffel. But a bunch of the Ukrainians I, I talked to, and these are people that weren't I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say they were racist at all. Um, a lot of Ukrainians I talked to were like, no, it's just, it's an ancient pagan symbol. They're very they're very proud of their their Viking heritage in Ukraine. So you do see you see old Soviet statues that are getting taken down, but you also see you know Viking statues, and you see people with helm of awe patches and and Thor's hammer patches, and they're very they take a lot of pride in their Viking heritage. And, and people were saying it's just an ancient pagan symbol, so it's like. It might maybe it is an ancient pagan symbol, but it's an ancient pagan symbol that was made famous by the SS. And, and shortly after, I took a photo of that Azov dude with the black sun on his plate carrier. The buffalo shooting happened, and that guy had a black sun on his plate carrier. And I saw some people on the internet finally, uh, you know, bringing Azov back up and be like, "Okay, explain this." I don't know. From for me, it just it just seems in the middle. I mean. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're not they're not genocidal Nazis, but they're definitely far right. When I was in Ukraine, I had a couple buddies who were straight from Africa. We were in the army together and I saw them experience like straight up racism whenever we went out to get like food. Oh, I heard the hard R more times than I care to admit. Yeah, they they have no problems not only saying it, but they'll treat them very differently. Like we, we went to a place where they pretty much, you know, you walk through a line, it was almost like a buffet, but you couldn't take what you wanted. And it was like sausages, rice, uh, what's buckweed. I fucking love buckweed. Um, oh, that was very good. I had a lot of that buckwheat. Yeah. Buckwheat is great in Ukraine. Um, yeah, still, the food is so good. It is tremendous, but I would be like sandwiched between them. Um, so my one buddy on the left would get like no food and he would just look at them and they wouldn't even look at them. And then I would hand my tray up and I would get a fuck ton of food. And then my buddy who's also from Africa on the right would hand his tray up and get like no food. And then they wouldn't even like look or acknowledge or speak with them. Holy and, shit. Yeah. And like things like that and hearing the hard war, the hard R over there a lot. I well, know Malcolm that... Nance is changing that <laughs> single handedly. Who he's is? getting rid of all Malcolm Nance. He's single-handedly getting rid of all the black, anti-black racism. I don't know who that is. Who's that? He was an Im He was an Im He's former. I want to say Navy. Former Navy MSNBC. I think correspondent who uh, decided he was going to join up while he was there. Wait, is that the, is that the guy who everybody thinks is like faking being there? No, not him, because he's he's he was there with like a legitimate outlet. He was oh, definitely okay. there, but a bunch of uh, there are a couple of uh, foreign volunteers that I'm like, you know, I've talked to on Instagram who've been there long before the invasion, like who've been there for years, 
a lot a lot a lot of these people do shit talk malcolm talking about how like oh he's just in lviv he's in the west he's not actually getting into the east or seeing any of it so so you're with the asdorf guys and you think it's kind of somewhere in the middle and i i think that yeah i, mean, I can't say one way or the other because i've never i haven't been over there and because there is there were a few there were a few things like there was a restaurant i went to it was called it was called Black Food, and their logo was a cartoon version of Drake. Jeez, I was like, "You fucking serious?" And 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 I'm ex- and I'm like going in there. I'm like, "Okay, what kind of food is this going to be?" It was just shawarma. It's just a freaking kebab place, and uh, so I, I ordered the Mexican shawarma, and it was just I'm thinking it's going to be kind of like a burrito or something, and it's just a regular shawarma but with bell peppers added. So it's like there's that. I mean, there's there was this one time I met this one soldier, and this was I—I I was just I, I had no words for this guy. Um, he took us down into the, one of the metros. This is before I was living in the metro, a, a different metro. But he—he he took us down in the metro, and uh, you know I'm talking to him because he speaks broken English, and he's telling me how he visited the United States as a kid. I'm like, where? He's like California. I'm like, oh, I used to live there, and uh, he's like, yeah, I was in Los Angeles. I love hard R and. <laughs> I'm like, I love foreign arts. I'm like, I, I don't even know how to, how to respond to that. Like, no, I didn't no. know. Just, oh my god! Just Mitch uncomfortably looking around his room. <laughs> the two personalities. I, I was just, I was just shocked. Like, what the, what the hell am I supposed to say to that? Because uh, you got to keep in mind, there's the the power dynamic. This is the soldier who's escorting us through the metro. And, like, civilians are like, oh, no, don't take our picture. And he's arguing with them, like, hey, they're here to show the world what Russia's doing to us. You know, I almost want to chalk that up as, like, I don't want to say ignorance. But to some extent it is, like, to not understand that that word is, like, an in... Yeah, it's a... Yeah, that that word uh, comes from centuries of dehumanization, yeah. and not a good no, one. And to use that to describe somebody, but in a way where you're like positive, I, it sounds almost like they yeah. just don't understand, yeah. and they think like because, uh, like I said, when I was there, and I figured out you know, a lot of black people don't go up to Ukraine, and they've never historically really been up there, and the countries that are kind of isolated from different cultures and different people. They might, I mean, some are certainly racist, but some might not just be racist. They just don't know the appropriate way to go about speaking with or speaking, you know, some things that sound simple to us, just interacting with people. They don't know how to do that because they've been isolated from so many different cultures. They've been isolated from so many different types of people. And I'm not defending the ones that are actually racist who think like, oh, they're not a human because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's certain ignorance with having never been exposed to different cultures and only growing up in your own and where you're like, Oh, you know, this is just how we, you know, describe people over there. I don't mean it in an insulting way. That's just how I know to describe people. Yeah. I, I, it, it, I mean, I don't know the guy, obviously it doesn't feel like there's malice, like, but it, it is cultural. It's all cultural. Um, Yeah. And it's a, it reminds me of a funny anecdote. So I was with this one territorial defense soldier, and he's talking about, it's like, oh, Ukraine's not racist. We have all this diversity. 
And he starts listing off all the nationalities there in Ukraine. And he's just like, we have Armenians, Azerbaijanis, Georgians, Dagestanis. He just starts listing off the caucuses. And that was like most, most of the times people are like, oh yeah, there's so much diversity. They just go to the caucuses. And, and that was, that was it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I firsthand witnessed flat out racism and treating, you know, my, my black friends who straight from Africa very differently heard a lot of hard R's used with malice. But I do also know just from traveling throughout Europe and the Middle East that there are some people, it sounds like kind of like that guy that you were with who said he loves them. Um, there are just some people who don't, they've never been exposed to a different culture. And yeah. It's just kind of like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not you, racist. Uh, I just, I don't know how to describe this person. So I've, uh, I guess I guess like you could say that's similar to some stuff I've seen in in Latin American countries, um, like I've been been with people that were smoking and it's like oh bro you're so high you look Chinese or you know I, I've got some Arabic on my arm that I I got tattooed in Jordan and this guy asked me he's like oh is that is that Chinese and I was in Puerto Rico and and my girlfriend got a yellow drink and it was called un chino Chinese that's <laughs> just. Nathan's Chinese, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm allowed to laugh in general. It's just, you know, like I, I, in common Spanish, it's like Asian yeah. and Chinese are synonyms in a lot of the yeah. vernacular. I, I prefer Oriental. You, y'all can call me Oriental. Oof. I find it fun. Oof. Well, I, I mean, enjoy making people uncomfortable making racist jokes about myself. Um, well, it's definitely a nuanced conversation with different cultures. I've never really experienced a South American thing. Um, but I mean, it, it, it rings true across the world where it's just in certain cultures, there's just not other words to describe people except for, you know, like you said, oh, Asians are all Chinese. Like we, yeah, it's sometimes it's like, is it hatred or, or just, you know, a, a lack of knowledge? I was just having this conversation the other day and I'm going to sometimes both use my mom as an example. So my, my mom is, you know, first generation immigrant. She she was, you know, a peasant who grew up, you know, with no running water or electricity, raising chickens with, you know, 11 other kids in the middle of... Wait, where at? Moor, um, Malaysia. Um, okay. Ethnically Chinese, uh, fled during, you know, the, the purges and the famines and all of that, uh, made it over a land border and eventually made their way to Malaysia, in which she joined, okay. you know, ethnic Chinese refugees from the... Uh, the purges, essentially. Um, so, you know, as, as she got older, she came over to Canada, has now fully integrated herself as, you know, a first-generation immigrant who's doing fairly well for herself. You know, she's fairly liberal left in a lot of regards, and she'll, she'll be very quick to decry racism and, you know, whatever whatever the common thing on the news is, you know. Um, she, she really loves her CNN and all that unless you bring up any other type of Asian race that's not her own. Japanese people are dogs. Korean people are awful. I went to Hong Kong once and immediately it was like, what? You don't want to spend time with those people. No, she's racist as shit. And my entire Asian family, holy fuck. They hate every other kind of... Even like people in the next city, people from like northern wherever country, they hate them. 
And like, there is a malice there. And I, I thought, oh, yeah. and th- this kind of got me thinking about um, a lot of the world's perception of racism is very, very different than us in the West. Like the, how, how they process it and how we process it, two totally different things. Like it, it simply doesn't cross their mind that, you know, like, no, if, if you're Chinese and, and someone is Japanese, you probably hate them. And th- this is that way in a lot of the world. Uh, Europe, I found very similar. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not even trying to defend. Yeah. Oh, know, yeah. I'm not defending at all. I'm not defending. But I, I find it fucking that. hilarious. But I do think there is just certain cultures who just don't. You know, there was um. There's Chinese people in Afghanistan. I didn't know that Afghanistan border China. Until oh yeah, yeah. And there was a ton of Chinese people there, and there's a ton of just Afghans people. You know, they're Chinese Afghans or Afghan. I don't. I don't know the proper way. To, to describe them but even they they would see our soldiers who were who were black and maybe we came across a village who never interacted with american troops before or like kids and they're like they would look at them and be like like what are you and, and it's like you know if you did that over here you walked up to a black guy and you're like what are you like <laughs> like you can't do that but like over there it's like there's this kid living in the side of a mountain who hasn't left this mountain. His family's been there for generations and generations. Like, I don't think it's with malice intent. I think they're legitimately just like, I have never seen somebody like this before. And it is a, it's hard to, it's hard to think about if you've only ever been in the West and you've only ever lived in like the United States, but there's just people who they, they've just never seen a black person. They've just never seen a different type of person and it's it's a it's a weird it's a weird way to go about life yeah well, it's, it's not, it's not a weird way to go about life because it's not their fault it's just yeah. a weird it's a weird thing to think about until you experience it which is why i was curious your experience with azov because there is a perception over here that they're all they're all nazis they're very racist and i'm sure maybe some are well i mean when we were hanging out of that sauna i mean we were with you know filipino volunteers yeah. And, uh, you know, they were pretty jovial with them. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it, I, I, it is somewhere in the middle, in my opinion. And I'm no expert on it. I was only there for four months, but. Imagine that a nuanced conversation. A, yeah. So, so have you ever been to the Middle East? I have. I, uh, when I was 19 or 20, I just turned 20. It was before I got into journalism I uh, I went on a backpacking trip in the Middle East. I was in, I was in Lebanon first. I was there for the uh, the protests. So I was in I was in Beirut and Batroun and uh, Cheka and a few other places. So I was in Lebanon for a little bit, Jordan, uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem. I'll just leave it at that. Um, then back into Jordan because I didn't want to get an infamous Israeli stamp. And I took a ferry across the Red Sea from Aqaba to Egypt. I was in Egypt for a bit. I was actually in Egypt for like a month. Uh, I went down into Nubia. I tried crossing into Sudan, but because of visa bullshit government bureaucracy, I was not able to get into Sudan. And uh, they told me I was going to have to wait for like two or three weeks. I was like, screw that. I'm going to go up to Alexandria on the Mediterranean. And I went to Dubai and I went home. So I uh, spent about two months or so in the Middle East, 
and I've been to Turkey a few times. So you were 19. What inspired you to just be like, I'm going to go backpacking across the Middle East? Oof. Um, you know, fuck it. I won't get into, into it too much. I, uh, I took a summer job working on a farm in Northern California. You can guess what kind of farm it was. And uh, I was there for about six months or so. And the girl I'd been dating, she and I broke up. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go backpacking. So I, uh, I picked that part of the world. And I, uh, I spent a few months on my little odyssey. And it was awesome. And then I moved back to Alabama. Hmm. That's actually really cool. What did you think of Dubai, out of curiosity? It's really one of the few places uh, on that list I've actually been to. And I, I have thoughts. So, so I was only in the UAE for like a day because I'm too broke to afford it. Oh, yeah. No, it's fucking expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. So the, the two Emirates I was in, I was in, I was in Dubai, of course. And I was also in Sharjah. And the reason I was in Sharjah was because when I was in, in Aqaba oh, back in really Jordan cool. – yeah, Sharjah was awesome. Yeah, when I was in Aqaba, I, I met uh, I met this Sudanese guy, and uh, he was I he worked. His name was Abdul. He was a super cool guy. Uh, so he was working for a shipping company, and you know Aqaba is a Red Sea port in Jordan, so that's why he was in Aqaba. We were staying at the same hostel, so uh, you know I helped him out. I did him a favor while we were there, and he's like, "Dude, if you're ever in the UAE, hit me up." So about a month later, I found myself in, in Dubai, and I was just hanging out with him and a bunch of his friends in Sharjah, and it was awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Sharjah was really cool, yeah. actually. Uh, if I went back to the UAE, I would not be spending my time in Dubai. No. I'd get out into the other Emirates, for sure. No. I, when I go to another country, I don't want to be around other Westerners. It sounds yeah. terrible. That's why I don't go on cruises. Yeah, no, same. It, I feel that exactly the same way about Dubai, and I'm in no hurry to go back. It was weird, and yeah. I, I don't like that that strange forced corporatization of everything. Oh, oh, 100%. Yeah. That's, that's like the fakest city I've ever been to. It's just, it's all brand new. Yeah, shiny and steel and chrome and gold plated and everything. And then you cross the street or you, you turn the wrong corner. It's just like a Bangladeshi worker slum full of people. You know what? Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I, I saw that in Sharjah. It's like you go in, you're in Dubai and you're in some neighborhoods and you go in other neighborhoods in like nearby Sharjah and it's dirt road streets. Yeah. But uh, funny thing is, we all know the famous battle of Azovstal, the steelworks where the Azov guys are fighting in Mariupol. Yeah. Brutal, brutal siege. A bunch of steel from Azovstal actually built a bunch of the buildings in Dubai. Really? Yeah, that actually I, makes I found sense, that out you know, uh, after I got home. Yeah, there's there's buildings all across Europe in that part of the world that were like the, the steel came from Azovstal. It's, it's insane. But uh, yeah, I, I was feeling a little insecure in the UAE because I lost uh, – it's funny. I lost my shoes. Um, I lost my flip-flops while I was in Jordan. So I bought some fake Gucci slides. It was completely misprinted. They said ah. Guccel instead of Gucci. Ah. So, I'm, so I'm walking around Dubai, not sober, rocking a, a bathing suit because it's super hot. And I my dumbass didn't bring any shorts. So I'm rocking a, baby, a bathing suit and some fake Gucci flip-flops. And I'm at the Burj Khalifa 
surrounded by these Chinese tourists wearing nice-ass Cuban links and Louis Vuitton pants, and I'm just feeling so broke in comparison. Yeah. But I was still in Dubai, so. That, there's something just so innately depressing about that and how, <laughs> God. Yeah. Have you traveled before you decided to take that backpacking trip in the Middle East? A little bit. Uh, I went down, I've, I've been to Mexico like eight times. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I went to Mexico for about a month. It was my longest time there. And then I, uh, I'd been several times before living in California. My friends and I would go down into uh, Tijuana on the weekends. I, I, I accompanied my father on a couple of his business trips, but I didn't seriously start traveling until I was about 19. So you, you've kind of always, it sounds like, been around and about. How did you get into journalism then? Uh, George Floyd got murdered, and I found I found myself uh, both upset at what had happened. I mean, whether or not he was on fentanyl, it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter. The drugs in your system should not be a death penalty. One of the few political opinions I will openly state is that I am against the drug war. Yeah, but yeah. uh. Yeah, uh, fentanyl should not be a death sentence. It's my my controversial opinion on on George Floyd's death. But uh, yeah, it was it was during those protests that I decided to pick up a camera and start documenting. So it was just spur of the moment. And you're like, I'm going to start documenting this stuff. I uh, when I was in college, I studied anthropology. And I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I did a couple internships where I was working on archaeological digs. But then I got a job at a museum in San Diego. Or where it was outside of San Diego. It was near San Diego. And I spent hours a day categorizing pottery sherds. And it was so freaking boring. And I realized I've always loved history. I, I, I love history. And I realized that documenting it and seeing it is a hell of a lot more exciting. So George Floyd happens, and you started covering the BLM protests? Pretty much. There's a lot of bias when it comes, or there's a lot of thoughts about reporters in general when it comes to the, you know, the news here in America, where it's either the left is pushing a narrative or the right is pushing a narrative. I think yeah. with you, you do a good job, whatever your politics are, you do a good job of keeping your politics out of it. And it's very, here is what's happening as opposed to here's what I want you to see that's happening. Have you, so, so being in that kind of industry where it is very scrutinized, have you come across these people that, that, that give that perception or is that just kind of like a false narrative being pushed by some folks is there some truth uh, to it? There was there have been some colleagues that I've had to unfollow because they were too politicized. Uh, there was one colleague that I unfollowed because after January sixth, she was talking about how angry she was and how traumatized she was and how horrified she was over the fact that oh my god there was a riot in the Capitol building. But and and I was like, are you serious? You're she was just 
the people that are comparing January 6th to 9-11, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that some of them are serious about yeah, it. Yeah, I was about to say, haven't you heard? January 6th was worse than 9-11. It was the worst. Thing oh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> 3,000 people died. Yeah. And, and then there was a riot at the Capitol yeah. where like three or four people died. Yeah, and there yeah. were some suicides after. Like, yeah, it's completely the same thing. Absolutely. Oh, 3, no. 3,000 people died and then, then like a million Iraqis, you know. Yeah. But oh yeah, no, it's different it because it was Americans doing the attack. It's like, what? How, how, it, was, how? it was a riot. It was a riot at the Capitol building, yeah. and a protester got killed, and a cop had a tar- heart attack, and another cop got bludgeoned with a fire extinguisher. Yeah, the deaths were sad. Sucks that people died that day. Yeah, but the fact that people can unironically make the nine eleven comparison, where three thousand people died, is absolutely insane and those are some of the journalists where i've just been like i i I can't follow you anymore fun fact about 9-11 2.3 trillion dollars went missing the day before 9-11 happened uh mitch we're not supposed to talk about that oh sorry not supposed to talk about that or wtc building seven no that that, didn't happen it didn't happen 2.3 trillion dollars did not go missing the day before there was no commission that's you know, and the, the, the people investigating it were absolutely not in the other building that collapsed, even though no plane hit it. Sorry. Um, yeah, we shouldn't talk about that. But I, I know, I know, you mentioned earlier you don't want to get political or. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so you 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 start documenting that, and you've come across reporters like that. Do you have you ever seen anybody that maybe you were with where? they're very obviously trying to paint a narrative or is it always kind of been, cause I imagine with photography. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I can think of a couple examples that I'm willing to call out. Okay. So there've been a number of protests that I've been at in the Atlanta area. And this has driven me absolutely insane. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple examples. So the main newspaper in Atlanta is AJC, the Atlanta journal constitution. They've been around for, quite a while like a hundred years or so maybe maybe a little bit more but uh ajc has has a clear bias and it's it they're not they're not left they're not far left at all they're liberal so uh so for example uh you know the the antifas that were hanging out in the woods that i was with a couple months ago uh you know the defend atlanta forest movement AJC has painted them in a very bad light and AJC donates money to the Atlanta police foundation, which is, you know, the people that the Atlanta, you know, forest defenders are fighting against. But some of the the biggest examples of AJC's bias have been like, for example, one of my, at the very beginning of my journalism career, I was at some clashes in stone mountain, Georgia, and it was, it was called the, it was a defend stone mountain protest is what it was called. It was, bunch of neo-confederates that wanted to defend the confederate carving on stone mountain in response to the black lives matter protests and of course this neo-confederate protest was met with a left-wing counter-protest and there were a bunch of militias there on the right like there were three percent militias and then random rednecks that showed up with their guns and ajc talked about that they talked about that thoroughly, but what they did not talk about was the fact that there were multiple left-wing militias in attendance as well. 
there were Atlanta anti-fascists there with their Antifa flags and black bloc, and they had guns. And then there were some explicitly socialist militias there, the Coalition of Armed Labor and the Collective of Armed Workers. Both of them were there. And uh, AJC didn't mention any of the left-wing groups. And it was the same when the uh, when Trump was contesting the election and the Stop the Steal protests were happening. I went to a Stop the Steal protest in Atlanta at the Capitol building there. And, there, and it was this, – this one – I, I just don't know if AJC was trying to push a narrative or they were just being lazy because they, they were talking about Republicans being there. And it's like, these these were not Republicans. These were Proud Boys and Groypers. Like, this is not your average Republican. This is These are guys a lot farther to the right. Uh, AJC posted a picture of Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, and captioned it Trump supporter. And all of the armed Antifa were just omitted from their article. Never in attendance. Yeah, I I remember back when the protest. I, I call them protests and riots because I there were both. It wasn't all just one giant riot, and it wasn't all just one giant peaceful protest. Yeah. A riot can be a protest. It's just a violent protest. Yeah, a violent protest with property destruction. Okay, all right. Yeah, so the mostly peaceful protest narrative. And yeah, that's not true. Not true at all. Because there was there was certainly a lot of violence, but there was also certainly a lot of people who were like, "I don't, we're not here to be violent. We're here to just talk about these things." But I do think I, I do think most of the most of the BLM protests were peaceful, and most of the events that I photographed were peaceful. It was a lot more uh, boring sign holding events than riots. Yeah, I my wife went to one in Colorado, and she says it was just very. Like people just they they weren't blocking traffic. They were just kind of on the side of the street with signs, and um, you know whatever your opinion on that is is your opinion. But what was being it, it, the narrative that I saw, and I tried to not consume one sided media or the other. It was either these people are rioting, they're burning down Wendy's, they're just destroying everything. They're not there to protest. They're looting. Or it was like this is all fine. Everybody is just here. Nobody is causing any any trouble for other people who aren't involved. But I kind of what the theme I think we've been talking about. There's a lot more nuance to the actual truth behind a lot of things. And as somebody, you know, I never went to one. My wife went to one, and I always got her perspective. And you, obviously, you've been to multiple um, left and right. Uh, leaning events it, it sounds like most of them were just kind of normal people but I don't I don't think that's interesting to report on I don't think that's kind of what gets the engagement as somebody who definitely not yeah so so as somebody who is involved with that stuff does it incentivize you in your own, because you know it's it's your job, and it might not be your full time job yet. But for somebody who, if you could put yourself in the shoes of somebody whose full time job all they do is reporting, does it incentivize them to only do the things that are going to get the clicks, the likes, and the reactions? Yeah, I think so. I think people are definitely incentivized to show to show what's worse 
in a lot of instances. I mean, whether you're just on Instagram or it's a big news outlet, I mean, the more chaotic and violent it is, the more clicks it's going to get. And that's, that's sadly the case. How do you think we mitigate that? That's a tough question. I mean, as far as mitigating that, I, I, I wish that media literacy was something that was that was more taught and, and that people were better at analyzing the biases of newspapers and, and trying to see like if an if an agenda is try is being pushed even you know discreetly. I, I think that's definitely something that's going to be very very difficult to mitigate, and I think it comes across it comes. It comes up to individual consumers, but unfortunately, non-biased, non-biased stuff. It's it's less fulfilling personally because everybody likes confirmation bias, whether we admit it or not. And then on top of that, it's just it's less interesting. I almost don't want to blame the people who put out the bias sources, but it's hard not to. I think media bias is something that exists and I think it's, it's snowballing. There's a very big snowball effect when it comes to it because you have one side that kind of does it maybe once or twice. And then the other side is like, wow, look at the success that they're having. We have to push our narrative against it. And it just keeps going and getting bigger and accumulating. I think it's to the point now where it is so polarizing that folks like yourself who are, trying to be as non-biased i at least i think so if if you're pushing a bias it is very subtle and i can't pick up on it i try to be subtle <laughs> so uh, you are pushing a bias uh i'll just say i'm i'm anti-authoritarian but people people have accused me of being both on the right and on the left oh yeah big feels oh, when i when i when i talk about black lives matter i'm a leftist when i when i talked about these far left protesters in puerto rico i'm a leftist when i talk about guns i'm a right wing fanatic i've been accused of being on on all sides so maybe maybe i'm doing something right i mean it's easy for us to be like yeah you're doing something right because we get similar comparisons where it's like oh you believe that everybody should have rights, like you're a lefty, or oh, oh yeah, like, yeah, oh, but you believe in gun rights, so you're a righty. Yeah, yeah, and one th- one thing, one thing I, I want people to realize, uh, I've I've uh, I've been to a lot of events where leftists have been armed. Like left and liberal are not synonyms, and I wish people would stop using them as synonyms. Because I've uh, I've met many a leftist that likes gun rights. Well, it's similar to conservatives and like white nationalists. Yeah. Not every Republican is a racist Nazi, but there no, are racist yeah, Nazis definitely. who try and identify with Republicans, I think. Um, similar to. Yeah, yeah. Similar to like Antifa tries to identify with the left. Yeah, but uh, but they're, they'll be explicit in the fact, like all, all the anti fascists I've talked to. They're very explicit about the fact that they are not liberals. They have a lot of disdain towards liberals. It's, uh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're n- not liberal at all. I mean, you'll you'll have communists, Marxists, like anarcho-communists, different anarchists. It's all all on the left. Some authoritarian, some anti-authoritarian, but 
None of them are liberals. Hey, Mitch here to tell you about today's sponsor. But before I do, fun fact, the day before 9-11, $2.3 trillion went missing from the Pentagon. And uh, yeah, that's an interesting fact. That's not a conspiracy theory. That is a fact. Um, AWS, though. AWS! Advanced Warfighting Solutions. So $2.3 trillion went missing, which was about half of our national debt at the time. And as we know, debt is bad. So instead of going into debt to get gear, you can use code ARTANWAR10 with AWS to save $10 on an SMU war belt. $10. Uh, we don't get any kickback. You save money. They have really cool gear. So, yeah, let's figure out where $2.3 trillion uh, went. Okay, bye. I, I just, I, I can already hear the, the Predator drone circling your house, Mitch. It's not a conspiracy. There's a video about it. Where the oh, guy, I, I know. The guy the day know. before 9-11 is like, hey, so uh, $2.3 trillion, you don't know where it went. Yeah, and the U.S. also talked about disabling the fucking Nord Stream pipeline and all sorts of things that they do and then they don't want anyone to remember. So you, you are absolutely going to get drone striked and it's going to suck. So the left and the right, you've been to both protests. I'm curious. I have. I'm curious. So you have been around far right and far left people i'm assuming you've heard directly from them their thoughts their beliefs and and how they kind of go about things do you notice any similarities between the two groups after experiencing and having experiences with them well uh one interesting thing um so I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the 3% militia movement. Oh, fucking 3%ers, yeah. Yeah, the 3%ers. Yeah. So, 3%ers, very pro gun. A lot of the uh, a lot of the antifa that I've been around in Atlanta also pretty pro gun. It's interesting. Now, are they are they pro gun universally or are they pro gun for themselves? Uh, most of the ones I have been to have seemed to have been pro-gun universally. And the statements they've meant, made, I mean, there's the famous Karl Marx quote about how, uh, you know, it's uh, something... The, the right like, of the workers about, to be armed will not be frustrated or something similar. Yeah, it's something like that. It's something about how the working class has a right to gun ownership. And, uh, I mean, they, uh... They don't, none of the ones I've talked to have been in favor of any kind of gun legislation that would inhibit them getting guns. Because one thing I've heard them say is if the police and the uh, the fascists, whether they be MAGA or Threepers or whatever right-wing group, if they have guns, why shouldn't we? So, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, Antifa, they're not liberals. Don't make that mistake. They're far left. They're not liberals. So, uh, yeah, the... Uh, them being uh, them supporting gun ownership surprises a lot of people. So you, I have another specific question. A big thing that was brought up during the BLM protests and the riots back in like 2020 was that random things of bricks were appearing like overnight. Oh, yeah. You, I, you know, I, you obviously weren't at every I saw single some, one. I saw some brick piles. You did? 
Were they in like natural positions or did they seem weird? It was weird, man. It was weird. I have no idea. I don't want to speculate on it, but I will say I did see some brick piles in downtown Louisville that seemed odd. Hmm. Although I will say this much. I was at a protest in Hoover and there were a couple of people there that were obviously feds. It was just very obvious or not necessarily feds per se, but undercover Birmingham police. Yeah. And uh, like there was this one clean cut, you know, almost six foot white guy, you know, short hair, very he did not look like everybody else there yeah and he was he was trying to antagonize the crowd and get people to throw water bottles at the police and the police in hoover they were using any excuse they got to to mess with the protesters like if you you step too far into the street they would grab you and arrest you so the way it was is all of the protesters and journalists were on the curb and back in the grass on the side of the road and then the police were all in the road and if you stepped off the curb they would grab you and arrest you and there were a handful of people arrested, but there was one guy there. He's just, you know, that guy is just obviously he was not a protester and he was trying to whip up everybody into throwing bottles. And when some of the organizers were like, don't listen to this guy. We think he's a cop. He just got frustrated and left. And there were a couple of very, very suspicious incidents uh, that happened in Birmingham and Atlanta like that. There were a few of those that I saw. Well, I imagine not everywhere, but if I'm thinking strategy, let's say I'm a, I'm a leader of a protest that's happening and I'm on either the left or the right side, or I'm on the extreme left or the extreme right side as a strategy to make my side look better. I would definitely, if I could hire people to be agitators on the other side and make them look like they're on the other side, just as a strategy. I'm not saying that happened all the time, but me thinking, I don't think it is outside the realm to think that each side was trying to make the other side look worse than they actually were and try to instigate the other side into doing something. Now, the everyday, everyday common person who's just going to a protest because they believe in one side or the other, I don't think that they necessarily condone that or believe in that, but I just don't. Like, if I think strategy-wise, why wouldn't I do that if I'm a leader? I think that's I think that's definitely possible. I, I think it probably happened in a few instances, but, I mean, I subscribe to Occam's Razor. Whatever, is the, uh, whatever requires the fewest amount of assumptions is probably true. Hmm. I'm the opposite. I think fucking 4D chess. I think everybody, I think everybody is suspicious and everything is a ploy. I uh, I go with Occam's razor most of the time. I fall back on that. Like uh, all the people that were saying, like there were a bunch of Republicans coping after January 6th saying that J6 was actually just Antifa and that there were Antifa infiltrators and instigators. There. And I, I do not subscribe to that theory. No, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that theory. <laughs> I don't think like Antifa secretly went out and got thousands of people to go to the, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking like small local scale, but even let's, let's, let's do a different, a different thing. The election and like election security of ballots, whether you believe the election was stolen or not, I, I personally, I don't think so. I don't think any one side was like, did it enough outright, but to think that there isn't some type of election frog that just happens, I, I, I also 
don't subscribe to that at all just because yeah. it's possible. And with that many people, I think it's hard not to have like some type of election fraud, like at a, at a local level even. But I don't think it happens to the extent people th- kind of well, pushed. I think a lot of it too was like, and this happens every election cycle, but especially last one, like we need to do something. The world is going to end. We've got this Nazi who's coming back. Like the stakes have never been higher. And, you know, it does push people, you know, on small local levels to do something that they truly believe is for a, a uh, like they're, they're helping people. They're saving the world. They're fighting back against white nationalism or the communists or what, whatever, you know, whoever does whatever. But that being said, you know, my feelings about voting in general are that it's fucking useless. So uh, if Mar- Mark Twain once said, if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let, let us, us do, do it. it. Mm. Love that. Has either side treated you poorly? yes both it just depends so so some people i've built rapport with so there's some activist groups in atlanta that i have some rapport with and i've visited multiple times but when i was just starting to do this people were a lot more suspicious of me and then sometimes it's just been like even a little protests like like i i went to a protest here in Auburn, and I'm gonna be honest, it sucked. It was like 60 people. It was a terrible protest. But this, at this little protest, it was Auburn University came up with a new vaccine mandate, and they said that their employees, including student employees, had to be vaccinated. And a bunch of the local right, even people that were in no way affiliated with the university came out and were protesting on Tumor's Corner. If you're familiar with SEC football, after all the Auburn games, they'll go out and throw toilet paper on all those trees. So at that local landmark, the uh, the protest convalesced. And I'm going out there on my camera, and I'm completely independent. And there's this one group there, Right Side Broadcasting, and all of the uh, the, the protest was organized by the uh, the kids at Turning Point USA. And all the all the TPUSA kids were like, "Don't talk to press, don't talk to media," and they were just shouting at us. And I was getting pretty freaking angry about it, so I shouted out, "Some of us are independent," and uh, they shout out, "Like we don't we don't care, you're all press." And uh, they were they would talk to right side broadcasting, but they would not talk to any of us. Eventually, I found one of the protest leaders. I was like, "Look, check out my ghost gun stuff. I'm not." I'm not a big outlet. I'm completely independent. And then they started talking to me. But for the first hour or so I was there, most people were pretty hostile about me being there. And then there was like, y'all remember when uh, the feds were, you know, arresting people in Portland, you know, no insignia on their uniforms, just throwing them in the vans. Uh, There was a, a solidarity with Portland protest that I went to in Atlanta and even though all these people are in black block, this is back in 2020, even though they're all wearing black block, they're still getting angry at the camera and me being out there taking pictures. So from both the from both the right and the left, sometimes I've been very well received and people are happy to have me there and wanting to talk to me. And then other times they just they see somebody with a camera, they're here to smear me and they refuse. Although the uh, the hardest has been the Black Power militias, uh, they've been the hardest to get to open up. 
Tell us, tell us about that and and them. Ooh, y'all know Grandmaster Jay? Oh, with his uh, oh the bolt off the XM, no, the 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 XM five thousand or some yeah. bullshit bullpup. Oh, what a retard! What a quote the quote unquote bullpup. Uh, yeah, I, I met Grandmaster Jay and I spoke to him and I asked if I could get a portrait. My response: You do realize you're white, right? Oh my god! And I was I was just taken aback by this. I was like, I was not expecting really. <laughs> Not ex- <laughs> and I was not expecting Grandmaster Jay to say that to me at all. And uh, he's like, if you want to help us, talk to your boys. I'm like, what the, what the hell does that mean? White people, are not, we're not a homogenous group, but no difference. And then he gave me a fist bump, and I left without the uh, the photo I needed. I mean, I, I took pictures of him, but not like a opposed Grandmaster Jay portrait. So, uh but but then about the same time, other NFAC dudes, great. And I've talked to them, gotten interviews with them, built rapport with a few of them, you know, I uh you know, I've kind of you know kept up with. So it's just from, from all these different faction uh, factions that I've covered, some of them are always happy to talk and then some of them are pretty apprehensive. So we talked earlier about when you felt kind of unsafe obviously in ukraine yeah and i'm sure there's other places where like in puerto rico you were telling us before where you're on vacation i imagine that doesn't yeah. make you feel the most uh sp- riots are a lot less concerning because you know the police uh not to say san juan police have been great uh i'm a member of the national press photographers association i have an nppa badge uh, NPPA put out a statement condemning the police in San Juan because at one of the protests I was at, and this is actually a, like an, a couple hours after I had left, I thought the protest was going to die down. So I went back. So my girlfriend, Isabel, and I went back to our, our, uh, our rental. Uh, we thought it was going to die down, but then it didn't die down. It got very heated. And uh, one journalist got shoved. Another journalist, a guy named uh, Carlos that I know, he got maced, like he got directly maced, and it, was, it appears to have been intentional from the videos, because Carlos was very clearly marked as press. So there were some times in San Juan that I was a little sketched out. So at the at the next protest that I went to, that I did stay until it got heated and protesters clashed with police and police shot tear gas and mace. I made sure to hold up my press pass, and I'm screaming in English, and uh. I'm sure the fact that I was very clearly not Puerto Rican helped me. Uh, I'm sure that they were like, okay, let's uh, let's maybe not mess with this guy because he's not a local journalist. But uh, there have been other instances like, um, like uh, I was never worried at any of the militia marches I've been to. Like excited, but not not scared per se. Yeah, I guess what I wanted to ask in America, have you ever felt while you were covering an event? Have you ever felt like your life was in danger? Mm, not really. Not really. I mean, there have been a few times it's like, I, I, I hope I don't have to get a court case and, and deal with this. But all those times, all those detainments, I just got let go. Um, there have been a few times I've been worried about getting injured, like people throwing fireworks, but I've never been worried for my personal safety seriously. I mean, I got maced at Stone Mountain. That hurt like hell, but 
I got my eyes flushed out pretty quickly. Well, that's kind of, that's really interesting to me, especially how you've been able to cover both sides politically in the U.S., where it seems like the narrative of violence is always being pushed on both sides, that both sides are extremely violent and they want to, either they want to burn down all the cities and, and, you know, destroy America, or they want to round up all like the black people and they want to, they want to do something. I don't know. There's, there's just violent narratives being pushed on the extremes of both sides. And you've been able to interact with both. And it sounds very humanizing. Like there were, like at the end of the day, it sounds like a lot of them are just people and they treat you nicely, not in every case, but even with Azov Battalion, where we hear how they are and there's this perception and you're telling me that they're just, they're just nice people that treat you well, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, ideology of theirs is terrible and I wish they weren't, you know, so far off the deep end. I, I hope that all the foreign volunteers mellow out their, they're uh, super ultra-nationalistic views, for sure. But I, I would definitely say that most of the people that I've been with have received me fairly well. That That's... Excluding the Transnistrians. <laughs> that, that sounds good. Good? But I still have this... I think a lot of people, including myself, still have this perception where it's like these people are how they're described but i know deep down in my heart of hearts like they're just people doing doing stuff and maybe they have a terrible ideology or maybe some of them are actually outperforming incredibly bad acts for you i imagine you have to kind of be fearless when approaching some of these people yeah you have to you have to set your own personal biases aside and acknowledge the fact that you're probably going to hear some things that you vehemently disagree with and uh, you just take that as it is. Has any of them ever been able to like convince you? Not maybe not the extreme folks, but have you ever been a part of something and you went in and obviously you have your own personal bias, but you remove it for the sake of the job? Has anything ever changed your mind while you were there seeing something? Um, I, I wouldn't say that any protesters have managed to change my mind. I'm pretty pretty set with my own ideals. There have been things I've seen that have reaffirmed my ideals, but I wouldn't say any protester has changed my mind per se. I can definitely, I can definitely sympathize with people, you know, having having spoken with them, and kind of understand where they're coming from, see their perspective a little bit. But I wouldn't necessarily say my mind has been changed by them. Hmm. <laughs> Just in real time, seeing like the steam coming out of your ears, hearing the grinding of gears as you try and think. Well, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about, Colin. Yeah, but I'm trying. You, you're such an interesting person to me. With all of these oh, unique you. experiences, thank with you. all of these yeah. unique individuals and unique people and a perspective, it's a very and and being able to maintain that professionalism of not being biased and just subjectively reporting, it's not something that I see often. And it's, yes. it, it's not it, dehumanizing either. It is. And I, I appreciate that. A lot of people want to throw people into a, uh, I, I truly believe that most people are at least well-meaning. I want to say. I and, think most are. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's kind of refreshing to, to see that. It's it's like you aren't your ideals. I, I don't I don't want to demonize people, but I, I, I do want to call out what I do see. Yeah. What are your goals and ambitions kind of with, with reporting? Do you do you wanna start your um, own company? I do not want to start my own company. Uh I'd prefer not to do that for a number of reasons. I just don't want to deal with any of the petty can competitive bs that comes with starting your own company i i don't want to burn bridges with any colleagues really i don't i'm not the kind of person looking for confrontation with my colleagues over nothing uh i i'm enjoying the freelancing like i said earlier there's a spectrum of uh newspapers and publications that i'd be willing to work with how, how far right to, can a publication be? How far left can a publication be? I'd love to be somewhere where it's at least somewhat non-biased. That's definitely what I prefer because I, I don't. I, I want to report on what I see. I don't. I don't want to try and push a narrative. And but at the same time, though, the idea of objectivity is a myth. I mean, even subconsciously, we're all pushing our biases. Well, of course. I mean, we have narratives and we have things that we want to push. I think I think everybody does. Um, and it's, you know, whether that's good or bad, I think is up to the consumer. But there, I don't think pushing narratives is bad. I think pushing narratives for the wrong reasons can be bad. Like if you're pushing a narrative strictly because you want to rile people up and make them believe a certain thing that maybe you don't even believe is true, but benefits you in, in some way financially, in some way, or benefits you from popularity or growth you know, aspect, because followers on social media is also a benefit. You know, it's very powerful when you have something like that. You can you can monetize. You can influence people. Um, it gets credibility to your name, so you can, you know, let's say you have a million followers, and then there's a journalist that has a thousand followers. The the journalist with a million followers, whether you want it to be that way or not, is generally going to be more quote unquote credible than that journalist with a thousand followers. Yeah. It's uh, followers do and don't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, I need to make sure my focus is on getting photos to my photo agencies and selling articles that I write. Instagram is on the back burner, or at least it needs to be. Yeah. Although, although at the same time, you know, I have gotten job opportunities through Instagram. Like I, uh, I check my DMs and, and I'm asked to do an interview or a podcast, or I recently got in with a photo agency and they found my work on Instagram. So I'm not going to say that followers are irrelevant, but, but I definitely don't want that to ever be my sole focus. No, of course. And, and we, we briefly started to talk about it before the show, the moral question I have for you, you're not profiting off of tragedy. You're documenting it. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah. 
it's uh it's depressing but in a way it is profiting off tragedy but at the same time it is also documenting history and and bringing light to issues that people ought to pay attention to i mean it's it's a morally conflicting field for sure because it's 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 like it's it's always better if something terrible doesn't happen but if something terrible does happen it's an opportunity that's newsworthy yeah well and that's that's what i was talking about earlier it's kind of incentivized which is why i i i do try in my mind to hold bias sources accountable but at the same time that's kind of what's incentivized um it, it there's huge incentives for you to whenever tragedy happens to be there to pounce on it you want to be the one to break that story you want to be the one posting the pictures that nobody else is posting because it i mean it it benefits you that's your job you know you want to be good at your job but like you said the morality behind it it can be i imagine very conflicting which is why it is which is why partially we don't do news um, I know there's a lot of podcasts that follow news and they try and, you know, uh, break stories or they go out and they have journalists even. And that's part of why we wouldn't do that. It just, one, it's a lot of work. And two, the morality question, it then becomes, well, we're making money from it. Is it right that we're making money from dead people burning bodies um and and i'm not shaming you for doing that i i think i think yeah. objective reporting in those pictures are very powerful intense and important but it does it, it's a very interesting topic in question and i think there's a right a, a right way to go about it in my head and i think you do a good job at that but for well, you thank you how do you how do you kind of handle that 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 conundrum <sighs> I mean, I just, you know, remind myself that, I mean, it's, it's history, both amazing things and terrible things are history. And, and that's also why I try to have a, a, a diversity of things I photograph. I mean, I do, I do photograph lots of social movements and conflict, but I mean, that's not all I do. I also, I, I try to do cultural events sometimes and and more lighthearted things like i've done some unionization protests and things like that i don't want to just do war porn i i don't want to ever be a war porn page because i i'm not a fan of that war is fucking awful it's not something that should be romanticized or or like that but it is it is a conflicting field and sometimes i just have to some, there, there have been times that I've been excited about shots and then hours, hours or days later, I'm just looking back and kind of ashamed of myself being like, you know, what happened was, was fucked up. It's, it's important to document it, but at the end of the day, you just, you have to keep in perspective what happened. Well, and that happens a lot with war. You have a lot of soldiers who are excited to go to war and shoot people. Um, and then they do it and they, 
go back and they process it and it's a very conflicting thing it's like well oh yeah i why was i excited to go kill people and then you have to justify you're like was this person deserving of death and that is such an intense question to have to ask yourself and i imagine with reporting like you do it has to be similar where you're like, why, like, like you see like a tragedy happening and I, I don't, I, I can't blame you for it because I felt the same way with going to war. You see something and you're like, this is an opportunity and you get excited. You're like, I, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this. And then it's like, why am I excited that, you know, there's, there's a war happening and, uh, yeah. But I mean, then, and then there are other instances. I mean, sometimes it's just incredibly exciting, but then there are other times when it's like, it's, it's horribly sad. Like there was this one, there was this one kid named Dima. He was about eight years old and I interviewed his family and uh, Dima was from the Saltivka neighborhood in, in Kharkiv and uh, his apartment building got hit by artillery. D- Dima later died in the hospital and, and his mother was his mother was in tears when I, when we interviewed her and even with a translator, it was, it was a very difficult interview. That one, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I cried a little bit after that one. It was just, it was fucking sad seeing this mother who just, you know, lost her, lost her child. And I'd had some, you know, some dark stuff happen in my personal life, you know, very soon to that. And it just kind of compounded and, you know, you know, sometimes, sometimes it is really depressing and, and as far as Dima's case goes, most media and Ukrainian authorities say Russian artillery killed Dima, but his mother claims that it was Ukrainian artillery that did it. And uh, she and her father were convinced that that, uh, that the Ukrainians were responsible for killing him. And what actually happened? I mean, did the Ukrainians screw up and accidentally, accidentally hit that building? I think it's more likely that the Russians hit them because, you know, the vast majority of artillery coming into Saltivka is definitely Russian. I mean, the Ukrainians have position or had at the time, not now, but had at the time had positions in Saltivka. So, I mean, I think it's more likely that the Russians hit them, but they were convinced the Ukrainians didn't. It was just regardless of where the shell killed him came from, it was very very depressing and then there was another another instance for about a week or so in Kharkiv I was living in the train station underground in the metro and most of the people living in the metro were from Saltivka and Saltivka is on the the northeast edge of Kharkiv it's that neighborhood was brutalized during the battle for the city so many of my photos are just blown up Khrushchevka apart- apartments in Saltivka. And, uh, but a bunch of the families that were living there were from the metro, and I decided I was going to stay in the metro for as long as possible, and I was going to live with these families, and I was trying to truly understand what they were going through. And, and the longer I was sleeping in that train station, the more I realized I would never understand what they were going through. Because at the end of the day, I'm a content-creating war tourist. Whereas they were families being forced to live in those situations. And one of the most touching things was, even though I am the foreigner from a wealthy Western country, 
all of these refugees living in the train station were so eager to make sure that I had everything I needed. People offered me food. People would give me tea, coffee. They'd offer to loan me blankets. People were so accommodating and it was just it was just touching to see these people that had so little offer me the war tourist so much is that that was another thing that really put all of this into into perspective for me talking with people that experience or are experiencing these tragedies is something is something that I have been doing myself recently. Not to the extent that you were, where you were living with them. I, I've been talking with a lot of vets who were blown up. Um, Jed Morgan is one of them. And having to ask them, like I feel an obligation to ask them about the most horrific things that they have experienced. And going about that is very, I find, difficult in the sense that I, 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 there is value for people in knowing what they experienced, how they overcame it, and the very intimate details. Like I, I was talking to him about, he, 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 he laid down on an IED and his legs were blown off. And he, he remained very aware. And I was asking him, I'm like, when you look down and see your legs are gone, what is going through your head while you remain very conscious and aware? And, and having to ask those questions just on that level is very difficult. I, only, I can only imagine the people in Ukraine who lose family, who lose children, and they not only cooperate with you, they, they want to give those intimate details, I feel, from, from what I've seen, from work that I've read, um, things that you've done, things that other people done. They want to share these experiences, but that doesn't make it easier for the person trying to get those experiences definitely you're so you're living down in the train in the in the train system with them right kind of kind of like our version of the subway almost yeah yeah it's it just this the subway system in Kharkiv and I was I slept there for about a week so in the subway itself people would have pallets and tents set up and then other people that didn't have tents myself included uh, slept inside the stationary trains. So there was one bench on the train that was reserved for me. And I was never worried about anybody stealing my stuff. Because I, I just had my backpack and, and gear kind of, you know, sitting on my bench. But I had a bench on the train that everybody knew was, was mine. But, uh, yeah, but there were, there were people that were living there for months. There was uh, one girl I met, 15-year-old girl named Tanya. And, uh, her birthday was February 24th, and she lived in Kharkiv, and, you know, February 24th, she got the greatest birthday present ever, Russia invaded, and that day, uh, she and her family went to go live in the subway, and, and I met her in May, 
So they had been living in the subway since, you know, late February. So, I mean, like you were saying, a lot of people do want to share their experiences, but even though they understand the importance of sharing their experiences, it doesn't necessarily make it easier for them. Like, uh, Dima's parents wept a lot when we interviewed them, and his mother was very clearly getting upset with our questions because she'd been interviewed by multiple journalists before. And each time, they're reliving those emotions and those experiences and having to describe them. But, but people ought to know. I mean, people, people ought to know that, uh, that Russian armed forces have dropped cluster bombs on, on civilian areas in Ukraine. And I've seen the husks of, uh, of cluster bombs lying around in, in civilian areas to prove it. When you have to interview folks like this, do you have any way that you mentally decompress after these things? I smoked a lot of cigarettes while I was there. A lot of chain smoking. It was a stressful time. Well, I'm trying to... I'm trying to understand more about how people decompress after witnessing horrific events. Um, I've, been, I've, I've been talking with like I mentioned before, a lot of veterans and with the U S military, there's not really a way that vets can decompress when they come home. It's very much one day you're in a combat zone, actively being shot at shooting people, leading combat operations. And then in like three days, you're at home doing the dishes, dealing with a wife and a kid. Yeah. And for journalists like yourself, reporters like yourself, photographers like yourself, who are going and witnessing all of these tragic events, all of these horrific images, is there something that you do when you come home and you're safe in your bed or you're just safe at home that you just process things that you've seen? Or while you're there, are you kind of processing it? I guess both. I mean, I, I guess both, really. I mean, there were times while I was there that I would just think back to myself, damn, this is this is really happening. Like, if you told me a few months ago this is what I was going to be living in, I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, so, like, while I was there, I was both processing it, but when I got home, there were, there were a couple weeks that it, it took me a little, took me a minute to get adjusted you know, to being back in the United States. And like, I remember, I remember when my friend Liam and I left Ukraine for Poland and we had, we were in Donbass a few days before we saw a brief little bit of the battle for Severodonetsk before it fell to Russian forces. And we were in Kramatorsk and we get back, we, uh, we hightail it, you know, get a van to Dnipro, train Dnipro to Lviv, cross into Poland Across all of Ukraine in like a day and we're in Poland the next day and it just it felt so weird because for the past like four months almost there's curfew you can't go out at night there's sirens and then, then we're just in Warsaw and and we're going out at night drinking and, and everybody's partying and we're bar hopping and not Warsaw Krakow 
we were just bar hopping in Krakow and it just it just it felt so alien to have a normal night but what I saw what I experienced is is a fraction of, of what other journalists saw I, I have some friends that, that saw things far far worse than anything I see I saw I, I I know a couple of people that were at Bucha I know a few people that got shelled and there are other journalists that saw things and experienced things way worse than anything I saw. And and that's not even mentioning soldiers or civilians. No, of course. And that's not to discredit or maybe not discredit. That's not to put into a lesser light what the people of Ukraine or wherever you are experiencing who live there are going through. But it is very, the the moral question that we you know, you have to answer and that sometimes soldiers have to answer themselves is we voluntarily either joined or we voluntarily got us here ourselves to essentially make media for people. And like you described, like a war tourist, I imagined, I imagine that doesn't, when you describe yourself as a war tourist, that's not putting yourself in a good light. So you're describing yourself. You I'm, know, I'm being, I'm being kind of facetious when I say that. I only I, I met one legitimate war tourist while I was there, and I was like, "What the hell are you doing here?" Mm. But uh, I mean, for me, I'm just saying that as as in, you know, if I if I don't get shelled, God forbid, I will have a home to go home. To. Yeah, I have my house here in Auburn that I can go back to, whereas a lot of these people lost everything, and it's just I, I called myself a war tourist just facetiously. Mm-hmm. So I could keep that in mind, the fact that, you know, my home did not get cluster bombed. What does your girlfriend think of your job? She, uh, she missed me a lot and she was very supportive. She helped me to get there. I I, I couldn't have done it without her. After I got deported from Transnistria, I needed a little vacation and, uh, she came out to Istanbul to see me and I I had a nice week or so with her and then I got got back into Ukraine and she was upset about that, but she's very supportive. I, I, I couldn't do a lot of this without Isabel's help. That's kind of incredible to hear because I, you know, that's, that's not to say she, she likes me being gone. Of course. But she, she has been very supportive and there have been mistakes that I've made that have, you know, put strain on our relationship, but, but she has been, consistently supportive of what i've been doing and i'm very appreciative of that yeah i imagine it's difficult to support somebody who's like hey i'm going to go to ukraine and now there's a war like well and the other the other thing is um i was originally only supposed to be gone for about two weeks and that two weeks turned to four months yeah well well we mentioned earlier how you were in puerto rico and you were there on vacation with your girlfriend, and all of a sudden, like you're working, like there is a protest and a riot to go to, and you're. Yeah, she had fun. She's she's been with me to a few things. Does she have an interest in doing stuff on her own, or is she just going there as like your your boyfriend, your uh, your girlfriend? Yeah, um, she's gone in support of me, but she also is interested in it. But she's, you know, studying to be in a medical field. So it's not it's not 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 her field per se, but she's definitely informed on the news and she's been super supportive. And uh, so, uh, yeah, she went with me to Louisiana to see the NFAC. She went with me to a number of protests in Atlanta, several protests in Atlanta. 
we saw Alex Jones together in Atlanta. That was that was funny. They're, they're turning the frogs gay. Yeah, and uh, and, and we saw Nick Fuentes there too. Uh, I will say, fuck that guy. Why? Who, who's, uh, who's that guy? I, the name sounds weirdly familiar, but why fuck that guy? He's, he's he's like he's like my age or younger. Super far right, leads the Groypers. Like super far right, like they're not even Republican. Like they're just far far right. But uh, Fuentes was there, and uh, apparently I didn't realize this, but apparently Nick Fuentes and Alex Jones don't like each other now. At least I'm not really sure why. I haven't been keeping up to date with that drama per se, but I caught a, I captured a photo with Fuentes and Alex Jones together, like shoulder to shoulder. And a lot of people were really surprised by that because apparently they don't like each other now. But uh, yeah, Isabel was with me for that. Isabel got detained with me in Louisville at a Breonna Taylor protest. And uh, then we were in Puerto Rico together at the uh, at the Luma Energy protest. So that was fun. How many things have you been to? Because you said you've only really been doing it for two years. Dozens, dozens. Uh, I mean black lives matter uh covid protests uh refuse fascism anti-trump protests stop the steal pro-trump protests uh anti-black lives matter neo-confederate protests i've been with people that have been 3d printing guns and gone out to see fgc nines being fired i uh i went to the solidarity with sheik jarrah protests when um you know when israel was bombing gaza again so I was I went to some I went to a Save Sheik Jarrah protest, you know, Ukraine and Puerto Rico, obviously, Transnistria, uh, Georgia State Defense Force, uh, National Guard and Joe Biden's inauguration. Uh, I've done a couple different hurricanes. I've uh oh, all the black power militias, not just the NFAC, but also New Black Panther Party. And uh, and this group called the Royal Black Guards. So there have been a number of things juneteenth it's just a lot of different things that i've covered how do you decide which ones to go to a lot of it comes down to practicality so it's like i was dabbling with the idea of going down to you know tampa and sarasota and seeing ian's damage or hurricane ian but I, i might still go if i can manage to hitch a ride with some local church volunteers that are going to go down. But if I have to drive myself, I probably won't go because a lot of it does come down to, is this going to be sustainable? So what I'm finding with hurricane photos, they haven't sold as well because any photographer can go down and get hurricane photos. And also I'm in Auburn, Tampa's a long drive. And it's like, for the amount of gas that we would spend, I don't necessarily know if I'd be able to make that back. Whereas with ghost guns, I don't really have to go that far, because I know a guy in Auburn that's doing it, who also, um, he follows y'all. I didn't tell him oh, what, on what, this podcast. What's his username? Uh, Rusty Mosin. Oh, so shit. I, yeah, no, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah, all those FTC nine pictures on my page. That's uh, that's the guy. That, that's awesome. I didn't tell him. I, I didn't tell him I'm going to be on Seaburn. I hope he's uh, pleasantly surprised by this. That's <laughs> awesome. 
But uh, yeah, so I don't have to go that far for that. And also, I know him. I've got an in with him. That's something I, I uh, it's a little bit more exclusive that a lot of people are not going to be able to access. So for a lot of it, it's just how practical is it for me to cover? If there's an event in Atlanta that I can cover, I'd like to go to Atlanta. I mean, I, I've covered Indigenous Peoples Day protests in Atlanta where they protested to have uh, a cannon from the Indian Removal Act they protested to have that cannon removed. I went to that, like, um, you know, the, the Atlanta forest defenders that are, you know, militantly protesting against deforestation to build a, a police training center, covered that. If it's a big protest movement in Atlanta, chances are I will try to go because that's under two hours away from me. For me, a lot of it just comes down to, is it within driving distance? And do I think it'll be worth it? There are sometimes it's, sometimes there are some tough decisions. I'm like, do I want to go? Do I not want to go? It's a, it's a funny story, actually. Um, so my girlfriend, Isabel, her family's from El Salvador. And I was in El Salvador with her last year, last winter. And uh, I followed Trump on Twitter. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Maybe I should go to this big uh, Stop the Steal protest. Maybe I should go. But then I was like, nah, fuck it. I've been to a couple of Stop the Steal protests before. They were pretty boring. Whoa, I don't care about a Stop the Steal protest in D.C. I'm going to go to these Mayan ruins at Tazumal instead. I go to the Mayan ruins and I'm on my phone and all of a sudden they're rioting in the Capitol. Are you freaking serious? So sometimes it's just luck. Like, there have been times that we've driven up to Atlanta off of a rumor on Twitter that there's going to be a protest, and then nothing happens. And then other times, it's absolutely insane. Yeah, well, when you mentioned the the hurricane thing, you know, we, we talked about it earlier, how, like, there there has to be like financial incentives because you can't just do it for free because it costs money to travel. It costs money for equipment. It costs money for you to get there. So you have to, you have to weigh out, like, is it going to be worth my time going to this thing? Exactly. And, and as far as hurricane Ian, I'm on the fence about whether or not it's worth it for me to go. Hmm. I'll probably just stay in Auburn and write. I don't know yet, but. Hmm. I don't know if it'd be worth it. Do you get privately funded? Like, do you have ways that like people can support you? So sometimes, uh, I have my PayPal, which PayPal donations are very much appreciated. That, that helps me out so much. Um, I have my photo agencies that I sell to. So I'll, I'll sell photos to my photo agencies and then they'll sell those photos to newspapers uh, I'll freelance articles. I'll sell articles from time to time. And, uh, and then I have a sub stack, which is, I call it an only fans for writers. Yeah. You subscribe and you, and you get all my writing. Do you have a Patreon? I do not have a Patreon set up yet. I do have my GoFundMe and my PayPal. I, I need to get my, I need to get my, um, my Patreon set up, but I've got, 10 or so articles on Substack. I need to publish on Substack more often because uh, that's that's another one. You should really start a but Patreon. I, um, I know. I, I really need to. I need to get on to Patreon. Page, um, Pageosity. 
way back she was like on episode four or something but we we had communicated before that and she we were apprehensive about it she convinced us to and it has been one of the better decisions that we've done because things like that yeah this show would not exist in the way that it is if it wasn't for uh wasn't for patreon i imagine it could only enhance what you're able to do because people and i i already can imagine i'm you're probably if i had to guess you seem a little like less where you're you don't want to put your content behind a paywall which was one of my main things i i don't like so for example everything on my Substack, even the articles for paid subscribers i have instagram posts about all of those events and a lot of them all have instagram stories that go with it in a stories folder and uh, so a lot of that will be open for public view. It's just you'll get a little bit more detail if you wanna if you wanna pass the paywall. And I, I hate having to do a paywall, but yeah, we we were well, some things you just you got you just have to. Yeah, and it only helps you make that free content better. So I would I would highly encourage that you do because I think it would just be cool as well. People even if you don't have anything exclusive on there. Like the only thing that we have exclusive on ours, is it's targets, but we usually just kind of post them anyway. And we're like, yeah, you can screenshot it if you want, but you can download it off there. So like people do, they want to support folks like yourself. I mean, people, I didn't think about it until we did it. People just want to support us just because they, they like us. They like our content. And it helps out so much. I imagine if you got a Patreon where maybe one month you're not actually doing anything. So you just have that, that income coming in from it. And then it just stacks. And then whenever you want to go somewhere, yeah. it's like, oh, I can go. I have X amount of money saved up from a couple months from Patreon. I can go do this thing. I can get a better equipment. Um, I can get all, I, I can go there and I can do something. Um, oh, if I had better funding, I'd be covering a lot more. I've got a few other story ideas for the year. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cram in at least one other big story this year. I got a couple ideas. I'm not gonna say just yet, but there's gonna be some good stuff happening this year. I think. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely do need to get on Patreon. And and one thing I have found, it's like, yeah, there are definitely people that are happy to support. I mean, I have a lot of followers. And I try to answer as many message requests as I can. I, I obviously can't get to everybody. I, I try to answer as many as possible, though. But one thing I found is is a lot of people just they like being able to follow an individual correspondent who's not affiliated with any big media outlet and talk to him or her. A, a lot of people really like that, you know, being able to to actually talk with someone on the ground and, and get their questions answered as opposed to subscribing to some big corporate news channel, whether it be on the right or left. Well, yeah. And that's kind of why I encourage you to do it because like you already said, more funding for you, you can go out and do way more things. And it's similar with us. And we know how much it, it, it's impacted us with what you're doing. There is such a need and a desire to it and you're good at it. Um, Thank you. I, I was drawn in, like I said, like a year ago, I saw something on Popular Front had posted what you did, and then I just went and I stalked the living fuck out of you. Um, and I've been I've been talking about you and suggesting you for ever ever since to to folks who want 
um, you know, real images of what's happening and not just the same circulated images or the same circulated stories just published by somebody else. Um, I, I think you're a great source for independent news. I think you're a great source Thank for you. high quality, real pictures. I mean, that stuff that you posted from Ukraine was devastating, but I, I saw it and it's just sharing the tragedies of war, I think is very important to remind people that war is tragic and it's not just what you, you know, people get numb to it a lot and your power and, and your pictures are more powerful than just the mind numbing circulating images that are going through. I, I find they're more powerful and they're very well done. And I think people really want that. And I think a Patreon would do great for you. Um, I hope so. At least uh, people go support you so they can get more, more news out of you and get you to do this maybe as a, as a full-time thing, independent journalist where you're privately funded. It would be very nice. That that would be amazing. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting. Um, Oh, thank you for having me. It was great. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to maybe after one of your next big events um, that you go and cover, we'll have to. Oh, for sure. That'd be really cool. Actually debrief. You can debrief us on it. Yeah, for sure. That, I guess this was kind of a debriefing on Ukraine a little bit, but yeah. Oh, and there's there are so many things we could have gotten into. Uh, yeah, I definitely hope to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it was a real well, pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, you're incredibly diverse in your background, and you have so much world experience. I was I was very excited, and you didn't disappoint. I think we're gonna we'll we'll definitely have to do this again and get you on again and go into some other things, but um. Awesome. Yeah, I hope so. Um, no, close us out with uh, with some advice. Ooh. Um, when you're reading a news source, try and be cognizant of its bias. I'll give you two examples. Um, you know, let's let's look at the the war last year between Hamas and Israel. You look at one event, and Haaretz and Al Jazeera tell two completely different stories. So just try and be cognizant of biases when it comes to the media you're consuming. That's uh, that's my advice to listeners. Don't get caught in your echo chamber. You know, follow some right-wing news sources, follow some left-wing news sources. Yeah, get your news from a variety of different places so the biases cancel out. Get your news from Colin Mayfield. Yes, yes. I'll uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a sliver. It's just. No, not always going to be in-depth analysis, but here's what I'm seeing. I love that. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Thank you.